0: You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives.
1: Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. This year marks the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001, and as I've done with previous anniversaries, I'm speaking to an FDNY member who responded that fateful day. As this anniversary approaches each year, that day creeps to the forefront of our minds, not because of the date on the calendar, but because the hot, uncomfortable, humid days of New York City summer slowly turn to comfortably warm with bright sunshine, deep blue skies, and occasional soft breezes that transport us back in time to the lifelike memory of the fantastically gorgeous weather that day. We recall it was a warm late summer day when two of four hijacked planes were flown into the Twin Towers in New York City, ending in their collapse and enormous loss of lives including 343 of our own FDNY members. Today, I'm talking with one of the highest ranked members of the FDNY who responded that day. Fire Commissioner Daniel Nigro responded to the terrorist attacks on September 11th from FDNY headquarters in Brooklyn, at the time in the rank of the Chief of Operations. On September 11th, 2001, Dan Nigro had 32 years of service in the FDNY. Welcome to our podcast.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: Before we start talking about how you became aware of the attacks and your response and the response of the department overall, why don't we start with a brief snapshot of your career, starting with, did you always want to be a firefighter?
0: Well, it was always uh, a possibility, but, you know, I was the first one in my family. My mother and father encouraged me to go to college, and I went to Baruch College and studied economics and thought, well, perhaps I'll do something else, but firefighter always trickled back into my mind, and here I am.
1: Is that because of your father's position in FDNY?
0: Well, of course, you know, I grew up in a house with a fire captain, and the fire department was at our kitchen table with us every night. Half of my neighbors were firefighters, and they all seemed pretty happy. So it was a pretty easy decision to make that this would be a good career choice, and it certainly has been.
1: Did you finish your college education as well?
0: I finished early in my fire career. I, I didn't graduate before I came on the department. I was 21 years old, and I had a year left in school, so I continued on. For some reason, I did better working full-time than I did when I was uh, just a college student. I think, you know, the fire department brings some discipline, and I brought that discipline to my study and I did graduate.
1: Early on in your career, did you need to have the college No, As a matter of fact, there
0: weren't too many college graduates at least in my probie class or in my firehouse when I was first assigned, because it was not required either to come on to the job or to be promoted to any rank. So it was a little unusual, actually.
1: You started promoting through the ranks pretty early on in your career. Did you have this aspiration from the beginning?
0: Well, because my father was a captain, I felt I needed to reach that rank so that my family wouldn't think, you know, we knew he wasn't as smart as his father. I wanted to prove them wrong, and I studied very hard. My father encouraged me. He said, you know, a lot of people study for these tests, and if you don't really prepare yourself, you might pass, but you'll never get promoted. So I took him up on that, and I wrote a very high mark on the lieutenant's exam. So I was promoted with the first group in 1977, and subsequently the other tests seemed to fall into place when I took them. I think good preparation for the lieutenant's exam translated into success in later exams.
1: And over the course of your career, you worked in multiple different areas. You didn't just stay in the field the entire time, right?
0: Oh, I was in the field as a firefighter, lieutenant, captain. But once I reached battalion chief, I took a little detour to headquarters, and I worked for a deputy commissioner. I worked as the chief of personnel, as the chief of health services, And it certainly gave me experience at things other than firefighting and learned a lot about how this department works behind the scenes and what people do that aren't in firehouses. That was helpful.
1: That leads to other things like CFR, right, which is where we become acquainted. Then there's the merger.
0: Yeah, I I was promoted to deputy chief at the time, and they needed someone that was willing to take on an unpopular task— unpopular with both firefighters and our brothers and sisters in EMS. It was called a hostile takeover by some, an arranged marriage by others, but we did make it work. It was a terrific thing to do I think for the people of the city and that's really the bottom line. That's what the fire department's all about is serving the people of the city. How could we do it better training the firefighters in response to medical emergencies and bringing EMS in and supporting their efforts a little better than Health and Hospitals was at the time. And I think it's been a great success for more than 25 years now.
1: Great. As we move forward through your career, what year do you become Chief of Operations?
0: Moving through various assignments after EMS. They had tour commanders then. My responsibility was responding to major fires and emergencies. Mm -hmm. And then I was promoted to Chief of Operations in 1999.
1: Fast forward, September 11th, 2001, you come to work, and how does the day unfold?
0: Well, the days usually began for the staff in Chief Gansy's office, mm-hmm. which was just down the hall from mine. We would talk business and about anything else with our coffee before we started the, the regular workday of meetings, etc. So, you know, 8 o'clock-ish, we got together. We finished our business slightly after 8.30. I walked down to my office. I would add that Chief gansy's office and mine had an un- unobstructed view mm. of the Twin Towers. Uh, just as I sat at my desk, the building shook, and it was a very loud noise, and I couldn't understand what caused that until Pete shouted out, Dan, look out the window. A plane just hit the World Trade Center. My head whipped around, and that unbelievable sight caught our attention. It wasn't five seconds later that we were on our way to the elevator with Steve Marciello, who was going to drive Pizza XO at the time. And we're going to make our way there because we knew this was going to be what we would be doing that day. So typical fire department, in a way, you come to work and you really never know what the day will bring. Right. There is no script. Mm-hmm. This happened to be a major undertaking, but similar in a way that, you know, we're used to being surprised by things around us.
1: Now you're in the car together, headed over to the World Trade Center?
0: Yeah, it was somewhat of a miracle knowing that traffic, that there was no traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge from headquarters to the World Trade Center. So we're speeding over the bridge, looking up at this, and it was obvious that there were about 10 floors worth of fire from the way this plane struck the tower. And I, I first said to Pete, we c- we can't put out this fire. That's number one. Uh, he transmitted a fifth alarm from the car for extra help. And I, I said, this will be the worst day of our lives because, I mean, obviously, not only people in the plane and people in the building were already dead. More were going to die. And uh, our members would be in terrible danger working at this event. So we really formulated a plan to rescue as many people as we could mm-hmm. you know extinguishing this fire was uh, was just not going to happen perhaps we could extinguish some amount of fire in a stairway to get people out and that was about it
1: why were you so convinced of that was it just too big
0: Yeah, I I mean, I've worked high-rise fires before. I worked in Manhattan for many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, one floor of fire is incredibly difficult to put out in a high-rise building. Mm -hmm. The the size of the Twin Towers, the footprint is 200 feet square. Multiply that square footage times 10. It just can't can't be done. Mm -hmm. So the other plan was, how can we rescue as many people as we did? And uh, we were very successful in that and would have been even more successful but really simply ran out of time.
1: Right. When you arrive at the scene, had the second plane hit yet?
0: No, thanks to the light traffic, we were already at the command post. We had sent folks into the North Tower, and we heard the roar. The plane was traveling at such a rate of speed. Just had a chance to look up in the air and spot that plane striking the South Tower. At the time, United had an unusual color scheme on their plane. It was like a tan or whatever.
1: Is that the point where you recognized that this was an, you know, a large airliner that had crashed into the first tower, or were you already thinking it was a large plane before you even got there?
0: You know, I don't know why, but terrorism didn't initially come to mind when I looked out the window of my office. And what did come to mind was this was not a... Single engine or a twin engine Mm -hmm. six passenger plane. I thought perhaps it was a private jet and somebody decided they were going to fly close to the building for some reason because it was such a clear, beautiful day. It couldn't have, uh, you know, the Empire State Building was struck in 1945 on a very overcast day and the pilot couldn't see the building. That certainly wasn't the case in 2001. Of course, when this second plane struck, then we knew. A, the first plane was also a jetliner, and B, this was an act of terrorism. And the reports that were coming in subsequent were that there were other planes in the air and no one knew where they were going. Mm -hmm. So the situation went from very bad to uh, worse than very bad very quickly. So we transmitted a second-fifth alarm, and eventually a third-fifth alarm, which called for about 750 people at the scene.
1: And that's all before the tower starts to come down?
0: All before the towers came down, which seemed like a record time, for, especially for the south tower, how fast that came down. But I walked around the building and I saw the damage that it did. Actually, parts of that plane hit from the south. They came out the north and went all the way across the, across the street. mm mm-hmm. And a whole corner of that tower was taken out on around the 78th floor, perhaps.
1: And you could see that from the ground perspective? I could
0: see it when I, not from the command post, but when I made my circumnavigating the building, I looked up and saw it, and I was shocked at the damage and kind of picked up my pace to get back to the command post. Not thinking that the building would collapse, but I certainly thought that we'd have some collapse up on the upper floors due to that damage I could see.
1: At this point, you've sent a significant number of people into various uh, posts, right, in both towers. What was that experience like?
0: You know, we had staff chiefs in both towers. Chief Callan and Deputy Chief Hayden were in the North Tower with uh, Battalion Chief Pfeiffer. And then Pete and I, uh, we had Donald Burns on the scene and Jerry Barber on the scene, and we put them in command of the South Tower. Ray Downey, who was chief of special operations, took a number of units into the hotel, which we were evacuating also at the same time. So we had it covered with operations posts and chiefs and uh, units. And you could see in the face of some of the units that were sent in that people had had concerns. And I've talked to some survivors who tell me they uh, they felt that they might not come out alive. So... I could see it in their faces, and now I've heard it in the, in the words of some folks that uh, were lucky enough to get out of those towers, but uh, they knew what they were entering. And then someone asked me if anyone refused to ent- enter the building, any of our members, and the answer was no. Out of the 750 people called, everyone stepped up and did what they uh, what they swore they would do.
1: When you take the walk around the perimeter of the buildings to assess the type of damage that you're dealing with, and now you're starting to head back to advise what you saw, what happens at that point.
0: People often wonder how things play out and, you know, why some people survive and some people don't. I was in a hurry to get back, and I hear somebody shouting my name, and I turned around, and it was an a former employee here at headquarters that you know that I knew not quite well, but I, I knew his situation. I knew he had just had a child a few months back, and he was on leave, and he said, Chief, Chief, my wife works on the upper floors of the South Tower, and I can't get in touch with her. And she had just gone back to work, I think it was her second day back in the building, and I was trying to be nice and say, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, nobody's phone is working. I'm sure she's okay. I'm sure she came down and you'll, you know, get away from the buildings because things were still falling from the buildings and people were falling from the buildings. And I'm sure you'll you'll find her later, although I really didn't quite honestly believe that, but I wanted to try to make him believe it. And then I resumed with... Um, my aide, who was also uh, my nephew, who was helping me out for a little while while he was recovering from an injury, to walk quickly towards the South Tower. Our plan was to walk through the tower and come out in the hotel and walk across the street to the command post. We made some progress walking towards it and suddenly heard a noise, and I knew what the noise was, oddly enough, although I didn't expect it, that The south tower had started to come down in its entirety i thought we were a little too close if we would have stayed where we were standing so we turned around quickly and rushed towards some area of safety which we did find in a doorway and that building came down with that sound that people have talked about you know people talk about the sound of a train it was really one floor coming into another in very very rapid fashion you know bang 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 and although it seemed much longer they say it totally collapsed in 11 seconds followed by this terrible cloud of dust that ended up covering everybody and everything and really had you feeling as if you would suffocate Mm -hmm. because it became that hard to breathe but we didn't and we were able to Get up and move on.
1: Once you're able to see where you are in relationship to where the tower was and the other tower is still standing, do you start making your way back to the command post again? Or is there radio traffic at this point?
0: You know, there were some, but not a lot, and uh, a few people calling for Car 3, Chief Gancy, and no answer. I didn't think the worst yet at that point, but I didn't know what to think. I felt we had to go a little south to get back to the command post because Liberty Street, which was the south perimeter of the tower, would be blocked. And uh, that's what we started doing. And while we were in the process of doing that, and, and uh, the North Tower came down. And again, the cloud of dust, which we seemed to be moving from northwest to southeast uh, enveloped us and stopped our movement for a little while. And we regrouped and continued back.
1: Did you have to duck into another type of building or something? We did.
0: We did, you know, and just wait for that cloud to uh, pass over and get back out. I think the worst part of that dust was the what it did to your eyes for a few days. Mm-hmm. The, um, yeah. the grit, really did some damage. You try to wash it out, but it, it had a little, little help. So it, it was a little difficult to maneuver, but we, we, yeah, we, we think, were considerably lucky.
1: I think for our listeners, hearing a dust cloud, which is really the language we typically use to describe it, is almost misleading. It was, it was almost solid in its consistency when you're first enveloped by it, almost like concrete sand.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really what it was. A lot of abrasive material that pulverized when the building came down. Uh, getting that every, went everywhere, and you've seen the pictures of folks, what they looked like when they were covered in this dust, and look at what it's done since. All right.
1: Now the air clears enough for you to have a sense of which way is north, which way is south, and you have to decide to make your way yet again back to where the command post
0: was. Yeah, we spotted uh, a field comm vehicle. So I asked the two uh, members there to uh, see what what they knew, what, what they heard. I said, where is the command post now? And they told me it was uh, it was now on Broadway. The chief that was in charge was not a chief that was there initially, which really shook me up that uh, it was six of us there, staff chiefs, that they were, the rest of them were gone. It turned out that was not really the command post. I think people took command of sectors as they could. So on that east-southeast side of the building, Chief Herring, who came down from the Bronx, took charge of the operation in that corner. Once we got there, there was also a drugstore there that our medical officers had set up uh, almost as a field hospital to treat people. But other than really minor injuries or people with the problem of a vision from the dust mm-hmm. and some breathing issues. Uh, they didn't have a lot of customers. You know, people survived or died on that day. And that's highly unusual. But um, eventually we made it back to the command post which was still on West Street and we regrouped and I found out when I got there that Chief Gancy was among the missing. That he had gone south after the first collapse to try to rescue an officer who was trapped, I think in the restaurant at the corner of the hotel. He was joined by Commissioner Feehan. And while they were in the process of trying to find this lieutenant, the North Tower came down and both of them were were struck and killed. We knew the location, people had seen them, and knew where they were last seen, and Mm -hmm. that's where our members then concentrated a search for them. And they were two of the earliest people that were located in the debris, and both of them had perished.
1: Prior to that period of time, how many people do you think the FDNY rescued?
0: Well, we're told the number is somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000. I think... The number of people that got out of the building, you know, with our help or without, was just about everyone who was under the impact area. Everyone above the impact area in the North Tower and all but a handful above the impact area in the South Tower were killed. And that's how the day went. I think some of our members stayed. There were many disabled people working, you can imagine, among the size of the workforce, Mm -hmm. uh, having difficulty Exiting the building, mm-hmm. and some of our members stayed with them, tried to assist them. Some got out, and many did not, so they perished along with the victim they were trying to get out.
1: How many days was the um, unaccounted for list unreconciled? Do you remember
0: Of course, the command board from Fieldcom was destroyed when uh towers collapsed and recreating how many units were there and who were on those units because it occurred at the change of tours and many members who were getting off duty similar to Donald Burns who was already relieved responded anyway so for the first few days we had you know I think mayor Giuliani said it was an unimaginable number of people died you know total number because we didn't know the number and little by little people worked day and night here in headquarters and it took a few days but we whittled the number down and which sounds unbelievable because the number is 343 from a potential of what we were looking at you know possibly 500 because of course we didn't know and we we did come up with a list of folks it was painstaking but we finally did get there
1: obviously you end up taking command of the scene i did and now by default, you become acting chief of department.
0: Yeah, I, you know, second-in-command second, second as chief of operations, and then with the absence of the chief of department, you become acting chief of department. I saw Commissioner Von Essen later that day, and he said, you're it. So that's what we do, And and the big decision, I guess, subsequent, there was a lot going on. Mm-hmm. You know, there were fires everywhere, there were... Mm-hmm potentially people to rescue. There was a major rescue going on in the stairwell of the North Tower. And Seven World Trade Center was damaged and burning freely. And after witnessing two towers collapsing, we decided, you know, I say I decided as the person in charge, but I think any of the chiefs would have made the same call to clear the area around that building at some point in the late afternoon, an area of safety, which was difficult because there were you know we were still doing searches and mm-hmm. potentially looking for people who might be alive but I'm glad we did because that building which was 48 stories that would have been the largest collapse of any high-rise building in the world history had it not been the third highest it came down in the same fashion that the other towers came down completely uh, collapsed another major dust cloud filling the air all around it, but no one was injured or killed when that came down, thankfully. That's the only little positive we can take out of uh, the worst day in fire department history.
1: You mentioned that for some people, turning left or turning right, maybe not in these exact words, made the difference between life and death. What do you think were the choices that you made that, that saved your life?
0: Well, I I always, uh, I credit my mother for telling me to always be nice to people instead of telling that fellow, I don't have, I really don't have time for you. That delay, you know, and it's just, uh, just, uh, just what happened, you know. Otherwise, we would have probably been walking through the lobby of the South Tower uh, or talking to Chief Burns and Chief Barber and asking them how things were going there before we proceeded back to the command post. So that's, that's the simple answer to uh, how life is. You know, some people were, you know, standing close to another person. There were people that witnessed where Chief Gancy and uh, uh, Commissioner Feehan were, and they survived. So obviously, right place at the right time. Who knows how, uh, how these things go.
1: How long do you stay on the scene before you make your way home?
0: Well, somewhere between 8 and 10, I'm going to say. I was not really sure what time it was. I borrowed a car from Chief Myers because my my car uh, was crushed.
1: Chief Myers Sr.
0: Chief Myers Sr., Harry Myers. And I drove home so I could say hello to my family, who I hadn't talked to that day, and quickly change out of this dust-covered clothing I had on, try to take a shower and see if that would work on getting the dust out of uh, my body.
1: Were you able to call your wife prior to that at all, at any point during I the day? I was
0: not. What I, I had uh, Adam, who was, I say my nephew, got to a phone, a, a landline, and I he was. I said, if you're going to call your father, my my brother-in-law, and ask him to call my wife and just tell her that we're okay. So he was able to do that. Then I went back. You know, as soon as I got myself changed and cleaned up, um, we went back, back to the site, back to headquarters, and try to keep on, uh, keep on moving. You know, we the department did not shut down, right. and we kept operating.
1: Are you overnight on the 11th when you go back? Do you stay the whole night?
0: I think I did till very early in the morning. I do recall coming back home somewhere around dawn and. Uh, getting a few hours sleep and then heading back again. It was a hectic time. It was um, really evaluating what we lost in manpower and equipment and mm-hmm. people and how we would move forward. And it almost seemed uh, pretty immediate that funerals were being planned. I think already on that Saturday, we buried Chief Gancy, Commissioner Fian, and a, a firefighter from 21 Engine. Was the first, first funerals of many,
1: and that following Monday, you're promoted officially to chief of department. right? Yeah,
0: I think we had the ceremony outside on the plaza here on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon. Please raise your right hand. and Repeat after me. I, state your name, I, having been promoted to the rank of chief of department in the fire department of the city of New York, do solemnly swear that I will, I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of New York, of of New York that, I that I will faithfully discharge the duties of such rank, of such rank according, according, to laws, according to the laws, regulations, regulations, and, orders, regulations and orders governing and the department. and I will obey the orders of my superiors to the best of my ability, to of my ability. sell me guns. It was a very solemn occasion, you know. We're used to having promotion ceremonies where everybody's happy if families are cheering. This was not that. This was uh, people taking the place of those who perished. And, uh, and that was it. And it was official. I was chief of department and we moved, we moved on from there. and. Uh, tried to build the department back up. Thankfully, I use a sports cliche, you know, we had a deep bench. There were a lot of people in the department who have a lot of talent, a lot of knowledge. So we couldn't replace the people. I mean, the people are irreplaceable, but we could put people in the positions, and they were capable of doing the work. So the department continued on as as it always had. And I think sometimes... uh, These tragedies get people to perform even better than they thought they could out of necessity. You know, Mm -hmm. there was no choice, and and, uh, you did the best you could. And it turned out people did a wonderful job, and the department moved on.
1: Did you feel overwhelmed by that sense of loss of so much talent? That how are we going to rebuild? Or were you confident that the talent was there and it would just take a little time? I to
0: say it was a little of both that I was... I was confident that the department could rebuild, but I was periodically hit with waves of being overwhelmed myself, mm-hmm. you know, that we just went through this, my head is spinning, you know, and uh, am I really going to be able to keep up with this pace? But we had to, and, uh, you know, when that. Those feelings struck, you know, I had strong family and strong faith and good friends, and all of that helped. I think it really, I had someone professionally to talk to, counseling, mm-hmm. which I thought was very important. You know, and to this day, I am an advocate for people seeking counseling when they need it, and really everybody that went through 9-11 needed it. Mm-hmm. It was that type of event, so that helped also.
1: Is there one thing in particular that you think about or find difficult to deal with, like one image or one moment?
0: You know, I say for a chief officer that loses a firefighter at a job, it's, you know, the worst thing that can happen to you. So the fact that, you know, being the chief of operations at this operation and losing that many members in one heartbeat... I've never really been able to get over that completely. I think that, you know, that'll just stay. It, it just stays. It's something you suppress and live with, but it does not go away.
1: The long-term consequences of 9/11 are with us every day. Right? We are have a, over a thousand members being treated for various 9/11 cancers. We have or five hundred above that. For other long-term illnesses, we have members who have died of 9/11-related illness.
0: You know the well, the air quality there that day and in the days that followed. We didn't need anybody to tell us that it was not the best. You know, we were used to working in atmospheres uh, that aren't very good for you. So, but. There was work to be done and we did it. Did we have an idea that it would be this bad? I don't think so. You know, I don't think we we thought it would start taking people and to that extent where we have closing in on the same number of post 9-11 deaths as 9-11 deaths and so many people being treated for cancer. And thanks to advanced treatments today, some of them are being kept alive. But It almost seems that the majority of folks that served that day and in the days after have something from breathing difficulties to PTSD to the extremes of cancers that have taken their lives. And that number will just continue to increase as the days go on and the folks get older. And that is the legacy of that day that just keeps taking from the department 20 years later. It's relentless. And I'm sure for the rest of my life, however long that is, that's what we'll have. We'll have funerals and funerals and funerals in this department because of the work that day.
1: What do you credit your resilience to getting through the events of the day, the, the subsequent months, and, um, and the weekly, right? W- weekly we're going to funerals for World Trade Center illness, probably since 2014, since you were sworn in.
0: I think, you know, my father, who was uh, a captain in the fire department, he was also a captain in the Air Force. He was quite stoic about things, you know. So if you if you complained about something, you know, he, he went overseas in World War II. He left his family. He went back overseas in the Korean War. He left his family. He would say, that's what we do. You know, if you say, no, this is, you know, difficult or... Uh, yeah, it is, but, you know, that's that's what we do and that's what you need to do. You you need to get up day after day and move on with that day. Like I say, things don't completely leave you, but you can continue to be productive despite these things. And as, you know, so many people in life have had setbacks and uh, do great things. So hopefully I could at least do good things.
1: A year after you're promoted to chief of department, you do retire. The The World Trade Center Rescue and Recovery turns into a construction site during that point in time, and you retire for a period of time, and then you come back as the fire commissioner in 2014. What was that like for you?
0: Well, when I retired, it was really, uh, came very suddenly, and it wasn't something I really wanted to do at the time. People might have thought that was, you know, I was... Beaten up by the World Trade Center, I had to leave, or this was my plan all along to retire early, but it wasn't, you know. But I, I left, and I never really got it out of my system, I guess you could say. And
1: at the time, it was common, right, that the chief of department didn't really stay on more than a year because of the rules that were in it place. It was.
0: We had a tenure rule that, you know, if you stayed for a year, you were granted tenure. And I thought perhaps they would make an exception because of what we went through and how we handled it. But no, uh, I I wasn't going to be granted tenure, so I would have had to either step down as chief and stay in another rank or retire, and I chose to retire. But when Mayor de Blasio was elected, I saw an opportunity to come back, take a chance. Someone said, submit your resume, and I had to actually produce a resume (laughs) because I wasn't looking for a job. And I got an interview, and here we are, and I was selected it was really Steve Masiello and I had talked about it a lot you know after we retired he retired the same time I did you know maybe someday we'll come back and poor Steve uh passed on from World Trade Center illness 10 years ago he would have been very pleased but I really didn't expect that many years later that I would come back as commissioner I'm very proud that I did very happy that I did and um I certainly stayed longer than I uh, might have imagined early on. I had no idea how, getting back to work, how I would do with it, and it's been, I, I have found it very rewarding to be the representative of the bravest and the best.
1: How do you think this type of experience of 9-11 and the leadership and decision-making that you had to execute during that time frame, how do you think it's helped you during this tenure as the fire commissioner?
0: I think two, in two ways. I, th- I think one... In an unusual way, stepping away from the department gave me an opportunity to see things from different points of view from, as a, an outsider than I might have having continued on in the department at that point. Uh, and secondly, I think having gone through something as difficult as 9-11 the day and 9-11 the aftermath gave me a mindset that no problem is unsolvable or Nothing is beyond our capability to deal with and to create a solution for. And I think we've been able to do this these past years to look at whether it was Ebola coming to our city or this pandemic that won't leave us. We have to make difficult decisions every day and having the experience of making difficult decisions under duress and under a lot of stress and strain helps in the everyday business of the job today.
1: In 2014, the first 9-11 anniversary that you participated in as fire commissioner in an official capacity since you had retired, what was that experience like for you?
0: I think each and every year that I've been back to the department and the anniversary comes up, the emotion is very, very difficult to overcome for me. It's very personal. The ceremony we've had at headquarters, these are four people that I was very close with. Their families, seeing them every year in this sad situation of, uh, you know, we should be celebrating their life, but it's, it's really, uh, it's a very sad occasion. And I do not look forward to this anniversary, any anniversary, I never will. But again, it's uh, it's an obligation we have to the families to never forget. We said we would never forget, and we won't. And what we mean is we won't forget the bravery of the members, and we won't forget the families they left behind. And I think the Department has followed through on that now for almost 20 years.
1: What do you see for the future of the FDNY?
0: I think we can see the future in the past. You know, the department has, from 1865 on, served the people of the city. There are now 8.8 million people in this city, and the challenges are great, but the department has always risen to the occasion and served the people well. You know, we're, I think, rightfully known as the greatest fire department in the world, and I'm very proud of that, and I think... We are better because of the people that came before us, and I think the next generation in this department will be even better because they have more to build on. So I'm very optimistic about the future of the FDNY. I think it is still the greatest job in the world.
1: Thanks for taking the time to record this podcast today. It's really important that your story as Chief of Operations be on the record and recorded for history for all the people who come behind us who weren't part of that response. So thanks for doing this.
0: Well, thank you for uh, arranging it. And I do think it's an important historical moment that people need to know more about. So thank you.
1: Thanks for your candor also. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department subject matter experts go
0: to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.